Romans 14, 13 to 23 says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes something else, someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be people who have faith. Have faith that what you provide will satisfy us body, mind, and soul, that we would put our trust in you as you are good, not to withhold that which is good and pleasing, but to give and give abundantly of that which will truly edify us and make us more into the image of your son, Jesus. So God, would you bless us tonight as we do look to balance the, the knowledge we have from your word with sacrificial love we see modeled by your son, Jesus, that every one of us would be built up in that love that keeps knowledge in its right parameters. That none of us would boast at what we know. None of us would become puffed up but Lord, all of us would look to love you and love each other well with how much we look to give and offer up and sacrifice all for the name of Jesus. So God, tonight, would you soften our hearts to hear your word, keep our hands sprawled out, looking to give and give and give. That God, we would be open-handed with what you want to do in us and through us tonight as we're challenged from your word, but also empowered. Empowered to live the lives that you have for us to live on this earth while the world is passing away. That we would leverage everything we, if we have, everything that we are for your kingdom and the good of others. So God, would you bless our time tonight May you be praised with what we do as a response to what we hear tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What happens when I come to a crossroads between my rights 
and the edification of another Christian. What should I do? Do I lean into my rights and expect the other person to learn from what I know? Or am I expected to forsake my liberty because someone else is immature in the faith? That is the balance that we're looking to strike tonight as we continue our sermon series through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to correct and instruct them on several topics. Uh, the main reason he wrote to them was to urge them to be unified by prioritizing the gospel, esteeming to them the wisdom of God over and above the wisdom of man. But he also wrote to them to answer questions they had over certain topics. And we saw this with our most recent mini-series in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 on marriage and singleness. One of those topics was sex. Uh, that they wrote to Paul and asking, does all sex defile? But he told them that, no, he taught that sex between a husband and wife was good and even beneficial in the fight against sexual immorality. He also presented his advice to a few subgroups within the church of Corinth based on their uh, relational uh, relationship status. And inviting most, including single adults, single Christians, to remain as they are, if possible, because the world is passing away and the days are short before the Lord retor returns in all His glorious splendor. But in the end, it, it isn't sin if anyone desires to be married and pursues it for biblical reasons well within the biblical parameters. After Paul addresses this concern they had, he moves on to another issue they had questions about, food offered to idols. You see, there were two sources of meat in uh, the ancient world. The regular market, where prices were a little bit steeper, a little higher, but then there was also the local temples, where meat from the sacrifices was always available and it was significantly less in cost. Some Christians didn't see a problem with that, but others did. And it was starting to become a point of division in the church, which Paul is trying to prevent. So let's see what he has to say on the matter in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13 say this. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, 
the Father, from whom all from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Um, Lord God, we just come before you humbly, asking that you would speak to your servants tonight. That God, we would rest in this finished work of Jesus Christ and see our lives as merely a response to the grace that you have shown us, and that this text which teach us how to love our brothers and sisters in Christ really well. God, would you bless us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, tonight's sermon title is Balancing Knowledge with Love. Balancing Knowledge with Love. The more knowledgeable Christians in Corinth realized that idols could not contaminate food because idols are hollow and powerless. They would save money by going to the local temples for their meat. They wouldn't think twice about accepting the invitation from a, a non-Christian to a feast around meat sacrificed to idols, whether at a temple or in their home. But there were others in the church less knowledgeable about the reality behind idols. They were likely saved out of that pagan idolatry. So the idols didn't seem so hollow to them. They didn't seem so powerless to them. They couldn't understand how the more mature believers would want to have anything to do with meat sacrificed to idols. And so we need, so we see the need for us to balance knowledge with love. So tonight, I'd like to give you three factors to consider when striking that balance. Three factors involved in balancing knowledge with love. The first, knowledge. Knowledge, and we see that in verses 1 and 2. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Uh, Paul is transitioning from one topic to another, the topic of food offered to idols. 
And he will actually go on to answer a few questions that sprout up about this issue in particular over the course of the next three chapters. But here in chapter 8, he is mostly focused on urging the Corinthians not to eat in the pagan temples because it might lead to the destruction of a weaker brother or sister. He starts by factoring in one's knowledge. All of us possess knowledge, he says. This phrase is in quotation marks in your copy of God's Word to indicate that this was a statement that likely originated with the Corinthians, and Paul is responding to it. It was a common phrase, and Paul is using it and then explaining it. Paul explains that what the stronger Christians know in verse 4, Right? He says in verse 4, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. That, that's what they know. What's truly sad is that it's accurate knowledge, but that accurate knowledge has puffed up the stronger Christians. And yet again, the pride of the Corinthian church is the source of its division. It's pride. Remember earlier in the letter, there were different factions of the church divided over particular preachers that came to town and taught in Corinth, uh, one of which was Paul. Another was Apollos. And even the apostle Peter was in that mix. Right? Nothing against those leaders and teachers in the church, but the factions put these particular preachers on a pedestal, thinking that it was their wisdom that led their spiritual life. But Paul esteemed to them the wisdom of God above the wisdom of man. And we saw that in chapter 2 of the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 say this, And I, Paul, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul clears any confusion. Any power in his words came by way of the Holy Spirit from the wisdom of God. And that is a really, really good thing for the eternal security of the Corinthian believer. Because it doesn't rest in the words of man. It rests in the power of God. And so... He's teaching the Corinthians that we have no room to boast. Not one person, not one person can boast if they have shed their sin at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Not one of us. If we've all been there, if we've all confessed our sin and laid it on the altar of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His dying and atoning work, none of us can boast. None of us have done that. We're all relying on His sacrifice, aren't we? 
So not one of us can boast. Fast forward to chapter 8, and Paul is concerned that Corinthians, uh, the Christians in Corinth, are becoming puffed up by an accurate knowledge about God and idols. He has to remind them that knowledge isn't everything. He previews another factor to consider. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul claims this knowledge that they possess actually puffs up. It makes them prideful, whereas love builds up. It makes them more focused on others. And isn't that how we saw Jesus prize love to his disciples? As he says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this then someone laid down his life for his friends. That's how he described love to his disciples. And Paul's desire for the Corinthians is selfless love over and above prideful knowledge. So Paul corrects the one who thinks he or she knows something by saying that they actually don't know what they ought to know. And so I want to give you an extra point for tonight. This is one of the main points, but it's a good takeaway. If you take pride in your knowledge, you don't know nearly as much as you think you do. If you take pride in your knowledge, you don't know nearly as much as you think you do. Some of the most knowledgeable people in the church are also the most stagnant in their faith. May it never be said of us. What good is it if you know how to explain the Holy Trinity and you don't pray to Him? What good does it do you to fill in every blank in your sermon notes and never apply it throughout the week? What do you think you gain from life group if you aren't committed to loving the people in your life group. Paul would say that you aren't as knowledgeable as you think you are. Indeed, you still have much to learn about our next factor to consider when balancing knowledge with love. It's love. And we see that in verses 3 through 6. But if anyone loves God... He is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul presents something far better than knowledge. The one who loves God is known by the one whose knowledge actually matters. The one who loves God is known by the one whose knowledge actually matters. God knows those who belong to him. 
Paul will go on to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You see what he says there? We are known fully by our God. And Jesus confirms this truth in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. That's our Lord and Savior talking. And I love what we learn about Jesus here. He knows who are his, and he knows them fully. And that knowledge leads him to sacrificial love. That's our God. Can we just rest in that truth for a little while before we go any farther? Jesus knows every single one of us by name. He knows our heart better than we do. He has seen our sin past, present, and future. He called us to repent of our sins and believe in him. And by some mystery that I cannot fully fathom, he knows who will accept that invitation as well as those who will reject it. And yet, Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for the sins of the world, your sins and mine. If you respond to the saving work of Jesus Christ with genuine love for God, Paul promises that you are known by God. That is an intimate knowledge that says, I am yours and you are mine. When that love is at the core of your relationship, there is no doubt or regret on God's, God's end. None. Sealed by his power and his love. He sees you. He knows you. And he loves you with an everlasting love. We as born-again Christians rest in that promise. If you are not a Christian, I invite you to consider the love of God and put your trust in Him tonight. Anybody you've seen on this platform tonight will be happy to help you find rest for your soul in the love of God. Because our God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's who we believe in. That's who we put our faith in. Paul takes what he has stated about knowledge and love, and then he applies it to this issue of eating food offered to idols. Um, idols, that is, uh, man-made objects of worship, uh, they do not have any real existence in and of themselves. The reason... The, the stronger Christians know this to be true is because they also know another truth. There is no God but one. 
It is good to be reminded that Christians are monotheistic people. So if I can break that down for you, mono, one, theistic, God, one God people. We are one God people. We have one God. He is one in essence, three in persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit make up our triune God. And we are not tritheistic people. We are not polytheistic people. We don't have three gods. We don't believe anyone can become a god. We believe, just as it says here in the text, there is no God but one. And he is worthy of our love and our worship. No man-made thing is worthy of our worship. And God makes that pretty clear from the get-go in the second commandment of the Ten Commandments. As we read in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There is one God, and he says he's a jealous God. He is worthy of our worship, and we as humans are designed to worship our creator. But we don't. So oftentimes we don't. Instead, we worship things items, objects, people, flesh, images, experiences, religious acts, preferences, and even our rights. Paul says these are lowercase g gods. These are lowercase l lords. And they are all around us. They aren't God. They aren't Lord. But we've propped them up in his place to worship them. Let me read verse 6 really slowly to you one more time, just so we can recalibrate our hearts to worship our God rightly. He says, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the third person of our triune God, says this, yet for us, there is one God, Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. That's a rich theology, and it can lead to a rich worship of him. But we've got to get our hearts right, and we've got to get rid of anything that could be obstructing that worship. He says very plainly in the scriptures, he is our creator, he is our sustainer, he is our redeemer, and he is our restorer. And he is worthy of every ounce of your worship. 
when he does not receive that worship, he is lovingly kind to remove whatever it is that's obstructing your view of him. He enables you to love him well so that you can continue to balance knowledge and love. Paul gives us one final factor for striking that balance. And it isn't something that we talk much about in the church today, but I think we really should. The final factor is conscience. Conscience. And we see that in verses 7 through 13. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Uh, Paul broadens the church's awareness that some Christians don't realize that idols aren't actually God's likely due to their past experience of worshiping in those pagan temples. Paul explains that the conscience of the spiritually immature believer who once made sacrifices at those temples would be defiled if he or she ate meat purchased at those temples. At this point, it would be beneficial for us to have a proper definition for what Paul means by conscience, wouldn't it? Uh, in a book entitled Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ by Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley, the authors analyze every use of this word conscience in the New Testament. It's five times in the book of Acts. It's 20 times in Paul's letters, five times in the book of Hebrews, and three times in 1 Peter. And from that, they were able to put together this very simple definition. Here it is. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Your conscience, the conscience, is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Uh, it is most often depicted as an angel on one shoulder and a little devil on the other. I don't know if you were a big fan of Looney Tunes growing up. I know I was. Saw plenty of those, right? Uh, you know, Bugs Bunny or Sylvester. You know, has a little little angel on one, and he just doesn't doesn't typically listen to it, and listen to little devil to do whatever it was, uh, like eat Tweety Bird or something. I don't know. But it's it's rather simple for us. Should I go into that life group that 
isn't my life group and take some of their food on life group family day? (laughs) Should I move my coat so that the person who's obviously looking for a seat would sit next to me? Should I order an alcoholic beverage in front of these people I'm just now getting to know? These are matters of the conscience. What is difficult for us is that our conscience is different from everyone else's. And yet they're all God-given consciences. All of them are subject to the word of God. So I want to make that very clear. God expects you, his people, to obey his commands regardless of your conscience. But in the things that are not explicit in scripture, that are a little fuzzy, he gives us the conscience to help us determine what is right and what is wrong. It functions as a guide in that it warns you before you do wrong and it urges you to do what is right. But it also functions as a judge in that it accuses you and condemns you when you do wrong or it commends and defends you when you do right. And it is subject to change over time and experience. There's a lot we have to learn about the human conscience. But for tonight, we need to see how how Paul says we can harm someone's conscience with our right. In this situation with food offered to idols, Paul teaches that types of food don't move us closer to God or farther away from God. Now, I want to be clear, he's not talking about gluttony, which is obviously a sin in Scripture when you overconsume food. And he's not talking about fasting, a discipline esteemed by Jesus for his disciples to go without food. He's not talking about either one of these. That would be more of a quantity and a pace of consumption. And that's not what he's talking about. When he says food, he is talking about the kind of food, namely meat, and its preparation process. That is that it's sacrificed to idols. He states that it makes no difference. The act of eating food that was offered to idols in its preparation process is in and of itself spiritually neutral. That being said, there is more to this dilemma than meets the eye, isn't there? It may not be so neutral depending on who is around the one eating it. Paul instructs the more spiritually mature Christian how to manage their rights by carefully considering the conscience of those who are weaker. The goal is not to become is to not become a stumbling block for someone in the family of God. To help his audience visualize the dilemma, he kind of paints a scenario. So I want to do the same for you. Let's say you are one of the more knowledgeable Christians, and you are, as the Bible puts it time and time again, reclining at table. Right? Reclining at table. They didn't have tables like we do. Right? I know you've seen the Lord's Supper picture. They're laying down in reality. Right? They're reclining at table. So let's say you're reclining at table and eating food offered to an idol at a local pagan temple there in the city of Corinth. You're sitting with your brother in Christ who used to worship at that temple. And you see that he's obviously conflicted. You're about to start chowing down and you see that 
your brother is, is going for a delicious piece of meat. And then he takes a bite. What has taken place? Paul tells us in verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. You sin against Christ. I want to give you another extra point. This isn't a main point, but it, it's significant. We sin against Jesus. The person we love the most when we choose our rights over the spiritual well-being of a brother or sister in Christ. I hope you see I got that directly from the text. I'm not making that up. That's the argument that Paul is making. And I just submit that to you, worthy of your consideration. We sin against Jesus, the person we love the most, when we choose our rights over the spiritual well-being of a brother or sister in Christ. And think about it, if his or her conscience is still growing and still developing and you harm it early on in the process, it will be weak for the remainder of that person's walk with Christ on this earth. That's what Paul means when he says, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. You never really gave him a fighting chance. Which is why he ends this passage by saying in verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And that brings us to our main point for the night. We must balance our biblical knowledge with sacrificial love as we look to keep each other's conscience clear. We must balance our biblical knowledge with sacrificial love as we look to keep each other's conscience clear. We don't struggle with food offered to idols. The year 2022, United States of America, Memphis, Tennessee, I don't know where you would get food offered to idols. But we, we just don't struggle with it. No, that was something specific to the culture in Corinth. But in reading this passage and in studying for this sermon, you know what I couldn't help but think about in applying this text today? We actually heard it in our scripture reading. Um, it was Romans 14, 21, and it said, It is good not to eat meat, or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It's a really simple verse. And it's not focused on the rights. It's focused on the relationship. That's something I'd like for you to consider when it comes to deciding whether or not to drink alcohol. More than, does the Bible say it's okay? Would you just consider the people we're actively trying to minister to in this ministry? 
I'm not here to entertain arguments about whether or not it's okay to drink. I'm here to help you balance your biblical knowledge with sacrificial love so that all of us can experience a clear conscience. Think for a moment how single adults in their 20s and 30s arrive in this room and in our ministry. More times than not, it is due to some type of crisis, an emotional crisis. Maybe they're dealing with grief or loss, lost a job, or maybe they're dealing with anxiety or depression. Maybe it's a relational crisis, going through a bad breakup, feeling that loneliness and wanting that good biblical community that God provides for his people. Sometimes it's behavioral. Their bad life choices catch up with them. And they have to wrestle with the real life consequences of their sin. And we're here for that too. The young adults ministry is in the business of sharing the gospel, seeing people repent and believe, be one to a relationship with Jesus Christ, and begin to develop that conscience and build it up around God's word. We have seen people rescued from drunkenness, delivered from alcoholism, and the depravity that surrounds those sins. Why would you want to actively work against what we're trying to do in this ministry? Not to say that you're the one getting drunk. But think and reflect on what Paul's saying here. What does it even look like? What does it say to the weaker brother or sister? All for the measly right to drink. The most loving thing you can do isn't to put somebody on the spotlight and ask someone whether or not they struggle with alcohol. That's not the most loving thing you can do. The most loving thing you can do is to not bring it up and not partake. Go without. In that sense, all of us should be tripping over ourselves to see what can I give up for the spiritual edification of my brothers and sisters in Christ? What can I sacrifice for the spiritual good of others? Isn't that what Paul is after? Forget your biblical argument for why you should be able to drink. How is your brother or sister in Christ doing? That's what Paul is commending to us. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. If we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, our desire should be to build one another up no matter what the cost is. No matter the cost. And so I'm asking you as the pastor of this ministry to consider to lay your various liberties at the altar for the sake of edifying others, other weaker young adults in this ministry. And I know you think you're well within your rights, but would you just balance that knowledge with the sacrificial love that that should be typical for us as Christians and look out for the weaker brothers and sisters who already dwell among us? as well as those who I think Jesus would bring to us if we take this passage seriously. Can you imagine 
If an entire ministry of this church said, all right, we're going to lay our rights at the altar and see who does Jesus bring us? Who does he want to deliver from these various sins? Can you imagine? I trust that every sacrifice we make to build others up will be richly rewarded by our Father in heaven. And our ministry will have stronger and clearer consciences as a result.